The book of Proverbs, we start a new series today. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings, uh, largely uh, from King Solomon. Um, I don't know if you've ever read through it. It's a wonderful book. I, I've, over the years, I've really gotten much from it. But for seven weeks from now, uh, we're going to be looking at themes within it, areas where, where God's wisdom can shape and uh, change how we live. We're going to notice a well-ordered life brings contentment to us. And the question for us today to start out with is, what are the priorities of our lives, right? What are, what are my priorities? What's important to me? And if someone took inventory of my life, would they find it to be a little too crowded for Jesus, right? Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, this is where we're going to start today. It says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commandments in your heart, or my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Now we know that keeping God's commands stored up in your heart takes intentionality, it takes time, it takes an effort. Time spent in the Word, time spent reading, meditating, you know, memorizing, praying through it, wrestling with it. But this verse tells us that there's a payoff. Firstly, we gain a prolonged life, right? We do gain a prolonged life. In, immersion in the Word of God promotes overall health and better choices, lowering unnecessary risks in life, right? A life immersed in God's Word diminishes wrongful desires, addictions, and unhealthy, destructive behaviors. It's just a a fact. For instance, the Brookings Institution uh, identified three ways of avoiding poverty, right? Graduate high school, don't have children outside of marriage, and get a full-time job. Now, if you haven't done some of these things, or if you've done the opposite of some of these things, don't get all depressed. It's just... It's just a principle, right? Um, God can redeem anything, right? But graduate high school, don't have children outside of marriage, and get a full-time job. And I think those are three themes that emerge from a Christian ethic as defined by the Scriptures. I really do. We're called in Scripture to grow in our knowledge, right? To work hard and to reserve sex for a lifelong union with a spouse of the opposite sex. That's where we stand as a church, right? And we know that, we also know that multiple sexual partners brings a great risk of disease and unnecessary stress and unnecessary heartache, right? Have you ever seen somebody get, uh, break up with somebody after they've been, they've given their body to them, they've been sleeping with them, no kids in the room. You know, it it, it is hard. It's like ripping them apart because that union should not have happened yet, Right? So saving yourself for marriage, listen all you young people, as it turns out, is not antiquated thinking. It's not old thinking. It's just good advice. It really is. Since those who do so and those that stay married are actually happier in the long run. That's what all the research shows, despite all of our jokes about marriage. Right? Studies show... Could somebody grab me a bottle of water back there, Christian? Thanks. Uh, So studies show that people of strong practicing faith who make better choices are significantly more well-rounded and happier overall, especially in in a marriage marked by faith and fidelity, right? That's going to be good. (laughs) Um, When you speak, your mouth just dries out. 
But research shows of American adults who follow these three simple rules, only about 2% uh, are in poverty. And nearly 75% have joined the middle class of making $55,000 or more a year. There are other influences at play, right? But following these simple guidelines, uh, you know, they, they guide us away from poverty and they, and they guide us towards the middle class or better, right? It's just a more stable life. Today, more than 40% of ch- American children, including more than 70% of, of black children and 50% of Hispanic children, are born outside of marriage, out of wedlock. Combined with a high, high divorce rate, this means that you know, half of children will, will spend part or all of their childhood in a single-family home, right? And as hard as single parents try to give kids a healthy you know, home environment, children in female-led families are four times as likely to be in poverty, to live in poverty, which is associated with a wide range of negative sort of uh, outcomes in children, including school dropouts and them getting pregnant outside of wedlock. Interestingly, the marriage culture seems to be alive and well for those who get a college degree. It's kind of strange. These families typically have enough money to afford good schools and provide a stable family environment, which you know, allows children to flourish. And this success is due to the communal family life with strong values, a strong worth ethic, work ethic, and one which sort of supports and fosters further good decisions. Now, people can work out of poverty and into a better life by just simple good choices. That's what the scriptures teach. The, but the problem is that we, the problem we face now in society is that uh, the society has all but obliterated the discussion of personal responsibility. We have obliterated that. We can't even have that discussion. If we bring it up, we're like some sort of bigot and angry and whatever. But th- th- we have destroyed the argument of personal responsibility, demanding that all of our ills are due only to systematic societal problems beyond any individual's control, whereas Scripture always points the person, the individual, back to personal responsibility in the choices that they make in life. I can't blame anybody else for my life. All right. Now, that does not mean that outside forces do impact me, but for the large part of my life, I have to, to take responsibility for my choices. So... Secondly, we gain peace, right? We gain peace. When we're immersed in the Word, we find it harder and harder to live in anxiety, to live in bitterness, to live in fear, and we develop a greater resilience than others. And that's the truth. Christians have not only a solid, greater purpose right now as we're living right now in this moment, but also for the future, bringing a more positive outlook for all of us. We have a hope. Our simple theological belief of a Savior who renews us right now, but also will return to renew all things into, to, as to how they were intended to be, sustains the believer and like nothing else. It, it gives us something, right? It puts a steel rod on our back. And in the meantime, because, you know, building a solid life with healthy choice, choices shores up a network of family and friends who care, who love, who support all of us along the way. So it happens as not just individual, but as community. 
My family is far from perfect, right? My mom's sitting here. And, and well, I don't even know what I call you. My nephew's wife, my, my, nie- my niece-in-law, I guess that's what you are, right? Um, but they're sitting here. My wife's here, right? My kids have been here before they all moved away. But anyway, uh, but overall, it, it, it's, it's a blessing to be a part of an immediate and an extended family which uh, values these things and has largely made good choices, right? Not perfect, mind you, but has largely made good choices. Watching my children choose spouses from faith-filled families and even non-divorced families gives me great peace. Not that I would be upset if they, got, they married somebody from a divorced family. I wouldn't be upset about that. But it, it's not to say that someone can't sort of turn the ship around if they come from more of a broken past. We know that God is in the redeeming business, so I'm not picking on anybody like by saying that. But it does say to us, the Proverbs teach to us, and the Scriptures teach us overall, that good choices over time do make it easier in life. They just do. Right. And thirdly, it brings prosperity. Now, when we hear the word prosperity, we often think of a lot of great wealth, right? Like we just get really wealthy. But that's not what the scripture means when it speaks of prosperity. It's 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 not to say that God's going to make you rich. We don't preach the prosperity gospel here at this church. Um, Rather, it's that you will be whole, you will be healthy, you'll be well balanced, you'll be stable um, rich in friends, rich in family, having abundance, you know, f- financial stability in life, things like that. So hard work, consistency, good choices, and a healthy lifestyle, as it turns out, actually do really pay off. Scripture directs towards a balanced life, not one of extremes, since it's in the extremes that we get into difficulty, don't we? In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, for instance, the writer begs the Lord for exactly this in regards to wealth. He says this, Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I might have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Right? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So make me honest and give me what I need, no more, no less, right? Now, we know it's not sinful to be uh, wealthy. It's not sinful to be in poverty either, right? But these extremes do bring with them temptations that we would normally not face. Um, Wealth, as you haven't figured out yet, if you haven't figured it out, wealth sort of numbs you, doesn't it? It, it kind of makes you think that you're better, you're better than you are. It giving you a false sense that we are self-made, that we're self-reliant, things like that, that we don't really need anything. And the first thing to go is our reliance on Christ. It really is. It's the first thing to go out the door. You know, I've advised my children over the years some basic things about work, you know, uh, including that they should not seek riches, but they should... Over and above whatever they do in life, they should seek fulfillment in Christ. But I've told them some simple things about work that I thought were always important. Things like, like express a right attitude when you're at work. You know, don't be the jerk, right? Stay informed of what you're doing, right? Respect your boss and your coworkers. Evaluate and improve yourself 
Come early, stay late. Come early, stay late. Nobody comes early anymore, and nobody ever stays late. That, I mean, a boss notices that. Offer to take, an addition, take on additional work when you can, and don't complain. Don't complain. Oh, that's a big one, right? And all those, I think, arise from a Christian sort of ethic, a Christian work ethic. My son-in-law explained to me recently, really smart kid, he's, he's an engineer, and he said that college graduates have taken to coming out of college, getting a job right away, and then immediately searching for a new job to, to, in order to get a signing bonus and a little bit more salary, right? And they just keep doing this over and over and over in the pursuit of greater wealth. So he's, he says, yeah, people feel like they can you know, rise to $120,000 a year much faster doing it that way than just working in one company for years, right? Um, and doing this over and over in pursuit of wealth, it really only fosters distrust in the workplace. You can't rely on anybody anymore, and it'll eventually bring economic collapse. It doesn't work, and I, I was really sad to hear it. But this is also partly in response, you know, maybe they're, they're responding to companies that have become less personal, less caring, to companies that put profit over people, Right? Treating employees like commodity rather than a person. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Abigail Disney, right? And how under her grandfather's watch, uh, Disney used to pay a really decent wage, enabling workers to provide for their family, own a home, get health care, and even retire with some security. Something that she says has now changed in Disney and many other companies across the board. And I think I've seen that over the years. This is a different world that we live in than we did 40, 50 years ago. It's very different. Because in excising the biblical God from society, we devolve into self-centeredness and towards chaos. We really do. We really do. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you will. And in our selfishness, when we don't get our way, we quit, we never stay, we never work on the issues, it's always somebody else's fault, and personal responsibility and character no longer matter, only personal gain and desire, what I want to do, right? We truly need to immerse ourselves once again in the Scriptures, to get back to that habit, allowing God to define our character and our choices in relationships and work. The American Bible Society has released findings in their annual State of the Bible report highlighting cultural trends regarding spirituality and scripture engagement, right? And it shows that Americans who consistently read and apply the Bible have greater levels of hope and resilience, right? John Plake of the American Bible Society said this, Our research continues to confirm that consistent Bible reading leads to hope and greater flourishing. Christians know that Jesus offers us full life. No surprise there. But for those who are questioning their faith or even who need reassurance after a hard season, the data validates that applying the truths of Scripture leads to better health, better relationships, and a higher sense of purpose and meaning, all while bringing us closer to the Lord, to God. To put it simply, he says, the Bible's message is not only spiritually transformative, 
It also transforms how we experience life on earth. There is restoration and healing in the word of God, and we urgently, urgently need to point our hurting neighbors towards that life-changing truth. And we also need to get, ba- get back to reading it. You know, many, many Christians don't ever read their Bible. The Bible makes a significant difference in well-being as measured by the Human Flourishing Index, right? Scripture-engaged people report levels of flourishing much, much higher than those who don't read the Bible. And this includes areas of happiness and life satisfaction, mental and physical health, meaning and purpose, character and virtue, and then close social relationships. The Bible transforms not only you inwardly, but it transforms the community around you, right? In every one of those five areas, the scores of the scripture engaged, the person that is scripturally engaged, significantly exceeded those of the scriptural disengaged, those that don't read their read a Bible, including financial and material stability. When trauma suffers, sufferers are scripture engaged, they experience higher levels of well-being than those who have no report of trauma and are not engaging with the Bible. Trauma still has a serious impact on a person, but scripture engagement brings a resilience which promotes human flourishing more than trauma hurts it. Think about that. You know, all the money we spend on counselors, maybe we just need to read our Bibles, right? Last week, we started the new year by saying this, new opportunities await those of us who keep our eyes on Jesus, right? Developing the habit of turning the pages of our scripture, of the scriptures to, to find our place and our, ho- and our hope and our purpose in the story of God. That God's given us his manual of hope, the Bible, and we are invited, invited to unpack its message and to grow in its knowledge. So this idea of hiding God's word in our hearts has always been impo- an important theme way back in ancient Israel and, and with Christians throughout the centuries, right? In the Shema of Israel, Shema just means here. It's the first word of this, this section. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. My wife is tremendous with this. She talks about the scripture all the time with our kids, with me. We go on walks. She you know, forces me to pray when I'm just in a grumpy mood, you know, th- stuff like that. She's just phenomenal like this, right? So we see the importance of immersion in God's Word then and now. It still continues in ourselves, impressing it on our families, on our children, in our homes, not just on a Sunday morning, but around your dinner table, you know, when you're in discussion in the car, driving someplace. Talk about what the Lord has said to us, right? Talk about the truth of the Scriptures. At all times, you know, be breathing this stuff out. But if we take inventory of ourselves and how we spend our time, what would that reveal to us? How much of this stuff is really a part of us, right? 
They say right now Americans, on average, watch three or more hours of TV a day. So social media is at around two and a half hours a day. I thought it would be higher. But they say we spend a total of seven hours a day on the Internet. And when you add all that up, that's 12 and a half hours, add eight for sleep, and, you know, we're already at 20 and a half hours, and there's only 24 hours in a day, so it's only three and a half hours left. When do we work? I mean, for goodness sakes, right? Let alone when do we have the time to really sit and contemplate and immerse ourselves in the Scripture. I was watching, in research for this sermon, I was watching this young guy on YouTube. He did what he called a dopamine detox, where he fasted from social media for six months. He deleted all of his social media apps. He didn't, you know, engage with one of them. He's like 15 years old, this kid. Really, I, I, was, I was very impressed with him, right? And he had grown up in the age of social media. Think about that, because I didn't. When I was a kid, there was no cell phones, you know, th- stuff like that. It wasn't until I got to Indonesia, and I don't know how old I was there, in my 30s maybe, that there were cell phones starting to pop up. And even then, I didn't get one for like almost a decade, right? But so he's 50. He grew up with social media. That was his thing. He had never, ever known life without a phone in his hand, you know, going through these social media apps. And he gained what he said, two things from this. Firstly, he gained a great sense of gratitude and of well-being. He was overwhelmed by it, right? He said, and I quote, bruh, I feel awesome. That's what he said. I just loved it, right? But he was so sincere. He gained a sense of gratitude for life he had never known before. It was, it was pretty profound. A, a gratitude where you just wake up, and he said, just the world and life just seemed beautiful now. Isn't that interesting, right? He said he's, he's, not, he's now overtaken with this deep sense of giddy happiness that br- makes him teary-eyed, in, uh, at times, teary-eyed with joy. This is a 15-year-old boy saying this, right? Secondly, he mentioned the time he gained and what he did with it, right? That he never realized how much time he was wasting on social media, and when he gave it up, he suddenly went into a period of total personal holistic growth, right? That thing, the things he did now with his time were actually healthy activities. He learned more, he worked better, he, he, he pursued physical health, he appreciated things more, he read things, stuff like that. He simply could not put into words how much a fast from social media did for him in that six months. I don't know if he's still doing it, maybe he is. But as an old pastor, I, I would... Uh, I would uh, like to tell him that if he added a daily time in the Word of God, that he started making the Word of God sort of uh, a part of his life, he would find all of this even more fulfilling, and he would be introduced, he would put a face on that, that all that is good, you know, behind the creation that he now enjoys so deeply, right? He would understand where it comes from. We all fight this battle for time and meaning and character. We do. You know, and it's and it's hard sometimes. And sadly, many have succumbed, you know, thinking that they're taking the easier route, but it's not. It's not the easier route, right? Maybe we should go and listen to Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights, who who wants his players to win, right? But he also wants them to develop uh, character even more. And at one point, he said, "Every man at some point." in his life, is going to lose a battle. 
He's going to fight and he's going to lose. But what makes him a man is that in the midst of the battle, he does not lose himself. Right? We just want to keep fighting. I think that's true. In Harry Potter, the, in the prisoner of Azkaban, is that how you say it? I don't even know how you say it. Hermione. That, it seems like it should be Hermione. Hermione. Whatever. Hermione Granger, Granger, I guess, wants to take more classes than she can fit into her schedule, right? So she's given permission to use this special magical device called a time turner. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but it lets her sort of take a class and then she can go back in time and she can take a different class that was scheduled simultaneously as that class, right? And some people would sit there and say, well, that'd be great, man, that'd solve all my problems, right? As neat as it sounds, it reflects the fact that we tend to just pack our schedules to overload, don't we? We never have any rest time. And then we complain when there's not enough hours in the day to do what we want to do. Odds are most of us would like a time turner, right? Simply to be able to do more stuff in life. But maybe we just need to order our time differently, right? That movie, you ever see the movie Yes Day, right? The, uh, the story of the Taurus family, Carlos and Allison and their three kids, and uh, the parents have lost themselves in, in the busyness of life. They're just overloaded and all that stuff. And they used to be fun people, fun parents and all that stuff. But now they're enslaved to their schedules. And their kids are feeling it too. And so after an eye-opening sort of parent-teacher conference, they, de- they decide to have a yes day. So within some boundaries, the parents will say yes to all the kids' requests for the day. And by the end of it, the parents have found, you know, rediscovered their zest for life. The kids now have more respect for their parental wisdom, and everyone has a better sense of what's really important in life, right? The Bible's book on how to live wisely is Proverbs. And Proverbs 3, 1, and 2 speaks of a long, peaceful life. No one at the end of their life wants to say, Well, I wasted the time that I had, right? I never want to get to my deathbed and say that. We yearn for the life that this proverb describes, don't we? And the key to that contentment is found in following God's commands to spend our time wisely. We see this in Ephesians 5, 15 15 through 17. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity Because the days are evil, you are surrounded by things that want to rob you of life, right? Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So to understand the Lord's will means to ingest His word on a consistent basis. That word of God that is breathed out to you in in the Scriptures. Pushing away all the other voices, shutting off all those other voices, allowing God the time to speak into your life, into your hearts, into your choices, into your character development. Proverbs 3 reminds us of the importance of remembering and keeping. Remembering and keeping. We remember God's commandments and then we act on that remembrance. Keeping God's commandments is literally, in a sense, a matter of life and death. Walking well in this really does make life better. We might say it's too hard. You know, we might say, I'm too busy to follow Jesus. I don't know. 
But doing that would be like a lifeguard who remembers all the techniques to save somebody when they're drowning, but when the opportunity presents itself, they don't get in the water and help. It just doesn't make any sense. Remember and keep God's commandments, right? Prolong life, peace, and prosperity will come. They will. You won't necessarily get rich. I never preach that, right? But it will be better than the alternative. It will. A well-ordered life can be found in determining what are the right priorities and then putting those first. So the question for you is, what's most important to you right now? And how is that reflected in the ways that you spend your time and your money? Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 8, shows us wise understanding when it comes to our possessions and the potential monopoly that they can claim on us, right? The author asks two things of God, two simple things, to surround him with truth and to provide only what's needed with a very interesting reason for the second request, that I might not have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? When life is filled with our possessions or a pursuit of material gain, it becomes too crowded for Jesus. It really does. We buy large houses to fill them up with things. We, you know, we fill that one up, and then we have to go get a new one, a bigger one, and fill that one up, and we do it all again. We post our possessions on Instagram with hashtag blessed, and you know, we just have to have the next little get, newest, latest little gadget and thing. I'm guilty of this. Chris, I love Christmas. Right? I got some good stuff, too, for Christmas. I'm guilty of it. Where's Jesus in the midst of that kind of life? When Those are the kind of things that you're thinking about all the time. Looking again at verse 8, it says, Give me only my daily bread. Give me only my daily bread. And we realize, when we really think about it, that Jesus is our daily bread. That's what he claimed. That's what we celebrate once a month at Communion. That it's in, in, in an encounter with the living Jesus in which we get a foretaste of complete contentment, right? Jesus is all we need. He is more than enough. He's turned our poverty into riches. He's redeemed our time. And in him, we found the only thing in life which matters most. So is he number one? Is he our first priority? That's the big question. So chew on that this week, all right? And if you're coming to Alpha tonight, I can't wait to be there. Uh, IBK is cooking for us, amen? So you, you can, that's going to be some yummy food. So you can, you, can, you can enjoy it. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for uh, just the nuggets of truth in there, the little you know, emeralds that we find in reading those words. Just the simplicity of them and the profound truth about them. That they're timeless, that they're supracultural, that they rise above every culture, that they speak into every human heart, no matter what time or place we live in, where we come from, how old we are, or anything like that. So we thank you for that. We thank you for that truth that we can hold on to throughout the centuries, and in every, any place we are in life. 
We just pray, Father God, that you would round our thinking out in these areas. Bring us into your wisdom. Flood us with your wisdom. Flood us with your discernment. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.